Hello, it's Matt and Becky here from Local Zero. Just a quick note to say before the episode starts that from April 2024, Local Zero will be looking for some new funding to keep it going. We never imagined when we started three years ago that we'd rack up tens of thousands of listens across 130 countries and with a website hosting over 80 episodes. We've also met and worked with some incredible people, including Chris Stark, Hannah Ritchie, Jim Ski, Hugo Tacom, and so many more. And we've been able to showcase so many amazing local climate initiatives from all over the UK and far beyond. But sadly, keeping the pod going costs money. If you or your organisation would like to partner up with the pod as we move into an exciting new chapter, then do reach out to us. You can contact us via our email, localzeropod at gmail.com. That's localzeropod at gmail.com. Alternatively, you can contact us on X, formerly Twitter, at localzeropod, or on LinkedIn, direct to Matt Hannon or Rebecca Ford. Finally, to help us in our quest to secure funding, we want to hear positive stories from listeners about how the pod has influenced your life and your work. We hope to do a very special episode on this too. So please help us continue the fight against climate change and bring local climate action to doorsteps across the world. Thanks for listening. Now back to the pod. Hello and welcome to Local Zero. We've got a great episode lined up for you today and I am of course here with Becky and Matt. In this episode we'll be talking about water. We can't live without it, but who controls the supply and who looks after it has been a highly debated and contentious issue in the UK, particularly in recent years. And we are absolutely delighted that Hugo Tagholm will be joining us later in the show to chat about this. Hugo is the Executive Director and Vice President of Oceana in the UK. And before this, he led the ocean campaign charity Surfers Against Sewage. And before we dive in, I should let you know that we released not one, but two episodes a fortnight ago. One was the final episode of our Carbon Offsetting for Communities mini-series, led by myself into natural carbon offsetting, or nature-based. And the other was a great chat with Kate Bradbury about how we can use our gardens to protect and enhance the environment, so you can check these out wherever you get your pods. And if you haven't already, please do subscribe to Local Zero wherever you listen to your podcasts. Check out our website, localzeropod.com, and follow us on Twitter, or whatever it's called now, at localzeropod, where we'd love for you to get in touch with us. So, guys, we've we've had a flurry of messages and tweets following the chat with Kate Bradbury. Yeah. Really enjoyed that. I've kind of gone out into my garden and looked at it in a completely different light. So I'm hoping many of the listeners uh, got, got that too. Uh, but we had a really nice message from people like Akos Reves, who tweeted to say, listening to the latest episode of the brilliant At Local Zero pod made me feel good about our overgrown little front garden. So <laughs> thanks, Akos, and keep it up. Really appreciate that. And uh, likewise... Matt, we uh, we went and got some plants and <laughs> a load of pots. Yeah, good advice. It did feel a bit like a self help program at times. We've got some lovely <laughs> pots out the back. Got some compost. Yeah. Getting the plants in there now. Really exciting stuff. Yeah, and I like I like the kind of key takeaway from Kate was you know I was like if there's one thing we do, what do you do? And she's just like just plant, just just you know where there isn't green, make it green. <laughs> <laughs> do nothing else. Just just make it green. Um, but we've got a, a landmark a birthday, have we not? to celebrate a very important one you'll have to remind me <laughs> it's been a long time since we started this how, how many episodes are we on now 75 <laughs> <laughs> 
75. It happened in the midst of COVID, and here we are kind of two or three crises later. So yeah, yeah. well done, guys, for keeping it up. 75 episodes, and Becky is still doing her sound effects for us. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> We haven't quite been able to stretch to, you know, sort of stable of, of computerized. So, Becky, you know, absolutely essential. Thank you for that. But, um, right, so that's kind of the good news out of the way. <laughs> uh, deal with that first. Um, in terms of, right, so, you know, we're sitting here, we're recording. It's been a pretty heavy news week, has it not? What are the headlines that have caught your eyes? Oh, there's, well, there's been a few headlines that have caught my eyes. Um, let's let's start with the one around energy efficiency requirements in rented households. Mm. And uh, this, I actually it caught my eye today, but I think it's been you know something that's been talked about for a little while. And actually, we've seen that uh, Rishi Sunak is going to or planning to delay the energy efficiency targets in the rental housing sector. And so this was the requirement for all new private rented homes to have an energy performance certificate or EPC rating of C or higher by 2025. And that, I think, is a really, really important element to protect some of the people that are most vulnerable in society and to really make sure that people are able to live in well-insulated homes. And I, it's just policies looking to be taken away. And I, and I I agree with some of the statements that it's actually, you know, I'm a landlord myself, um, not, by, not, not by choice, but I've ended up in that position. And it is hard to find the upfront cost to make some of those changes. Yeah. But rather than just take away the stick, so to speak, like there, there could be support put in to help people like me make those changes and progress this forward. It feels like, why are we spinning around as opposed to actually putting in additional measures to, to make this happen? Because we have to act. It's Yeah, yeah. There's, there's a lot of strong feelings on this. Right, so I think the first is where this has stemmed from. So the uh, Uxbridge uh, by-election, which as we record, uh, happened about last week. It feels like a, a year ago, but it mm. happened <laughs> relatively recently. Labour narrowly missed out. The defining, or what is in my mind, not falsely, but I think a lot more weight has been associated with the reason that they didn't, they failed to take this off. What was Boris Johnson's constituency? We have to remember, you know, uh, the kind of the headquarters, you know, of the Conservative Party. Um, they missed out by roughly 500 votes. And one of the key reasons was the ULES, the ultra low emission zone, which has been expanded into Greater London. Now, we don't need to go into this now, but the emphasis was this was a green policy, this was unpopular, and so by extension, all other green policies must be unpopular. Second point, <laughs> green policies are not, or at least the the approach, uh, the aim that these green policies are trying to achieve, which is a cleaner, greener, healthier environment to mitigate climate change, is extremely popular. All sorts of polling that we see from YouGov all the way through to the government's own attitude tracker. This is popular stuff. And so to actually row back from this raises questions about the general election. And I'll jump off my pedestal in a moment because the third point about your <laughs> rental... to get up there. <laughs> I'll give way in a moment. The third point is that the private rental sector... Have a guess how many people in England live in private rental accommodation at the moment. In terms of how many percentage or, you know, out of 10 or 5 homes, how many roughly? It's about a quarter, right? Something like that? 25, 30%? I was going to say a fifth. Becky's right, a fifth. So a fifth. one in five. 
One in five of households, assuming they're registered to vote, assume they're eligible to vote because the rules have also changed on that, they're going to be voting in the general election. Do they want to live in warm, comfortable, healthy, cheap-to-run homes or not? Mm, here, here. And I'll leave it there. <laughs> Go on, Fraser. Up you get. So anyway, um, no, I think um, I think it's 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 useful, Matt, to to have that context because they do pull together, and I don't think it's a coincidence that the announcement on the private rented sector has followed the the Uxbridge by-election. I've I found myself really, really frustrated with the discussions around Uxbridge and around ULEDs because it is such a niche snapshot of a hyper-local issue that I'm going to say the vast majority of people mm -hmm. don't understand because the vast majority of people don't live in Uxbridge. Um, the extrapolation of that into conversations about should we be doing more or less green policies is a nonsense and it's so frustrating. And I think it's important for us um, to try and keep our eye on the ball, I guess, but for better or for worse, it, it has pushed in that direction. And I guess what's what's really troubling about it is the narrative now, and media seems to have picked this up as a, a legitimate concern, is that as you go about doing green policies, you somehow are likely to burden people with additional costs that you can't do green policies at a time of cost of living. Mm. And I think it's really, really important to challenge any separation of those two things because cost of living green policies, the causes, the symptoms, the cures are very, very much wrapped in each other, right? We know that yeah. energy yeah. prices are through the roof, driving cost of living because of our dependence on fossil fuels. So long-term, we have to mitigate that. We know that the price of food is going up partly because of profiteering by, you know, corporates and supermarkets, but because crop yields are so low across Europe and around the world as a result of climate change. Mm -hmm. So you have to do the green stuff to mitigate cost of living long-term. People need support now, but long-term, green stuff yeah. is not a separate issue. And I think it's really incumbent on us to, to emphasize that where we can. And private rented sector energy efficiency is one of those actions that we we do have to take. We can't afford to be hanging about anymore, especially knowing that people need bills brought down. The Office for Budget Responsibility just the other week there highlighted that if we continue our dependence on gas, we continue to not do the green stuff, energy efficiency and all that, then this will keep happening year on year. And the cost of mitigating yeah. that yeah. in 10, 15, 50 years time will be at least, this is OBR's own figures, at least double the cost of doing net zero now. There's a temptation, is there not? When you hear a lot of this uh, rhetoric about pushing back on all policies rather than just this one policy, that there's a temptation to dig so deeply into this to, to not actually listen to the kernel of truth that maybe lies within all of this. And... I think this goes back to the point around energy justice and a just transition where it, it is, in my opinion, unfair to expect the poorest, the most vulnerable sections of society who are, for, for one reason or another, very reliant on their vehicles, which may not be compliant and to not have a sufficiently um, well-funded and easy to access scrappage scheme for them to then you know, upgrade to a car, which is by definition going to be newer, probably, because it's cleaner and might might not necessarily be electric, but it's certainly going to be probably more expensive than their clapped out diesel consuming vehicles. So the point is, and this is why I think we all of us need to be aware of this, and this is what the culture wars is, is pushing this, you know, this debate into polar opposites, but we must actually acknowledge where one another maybe is speaking some truth. And I think there's something there that um, all parties not just the Conservatives, not just Labour, need to acknowledge if you're presenting a green policy, it can't just be green, it has to be fair. I, I think that's fair. 
I think that's right. And I think there's this is something that we've been emphasizing on this pod for a long, long time, is that generally speaking, if it's not fair, it won't fly. That's It's essential to public buying and to, and to public consent. What's also important is the perception of fairness, is that things are seen to be fair, that there's been due process, that people have been worked with to arrive at solutions that, that meet need and support people through potentially you know, adverse um, conditions or situations as a result of mm. those policies. So it is about working with people and it's about making sure that it's fair. But I think it's really, really important as well um, to not let this become a... Because it's it's easy to hide behind, ah, people might not like it, it might harm this person and it might harm that person. Mm. Actually, there's a lot of us doing a hell of a lot of work to try and make sure that this isn't the case. So it's not a question about do we slow down or roll back green policies? It's how do we make sure that they're fair and that they do work for everyone as far as possible. This is where the conversation yep. should ultimately be. Well, and also like on that solutions focus bit, because at the moment it feels like we have a lot of policies without pathways for how to effectively deliver those policies. And, you know, Fraser, you were talking a second ago and you mentioned about you know, prices going up and crop yields going down and, and a lot of this feed it, you know, like we need to contextualize this in the longer term climate change and broader impacts. And what really scared me was another article I saw this week, um, in fact, only just yesterday, around the fact that actually some of this stuff could be not that far away and happening a lot quicker than we think. And so there was an article out um, recently that that talked about, you know, the it was published in Nature Communications, actually. So a very, very respectful journal um, that, that talked to the fact that actually we could start to see these warm ocean currents that have made, you know, brought Europe uh, kind of warmer temperatures than they might, than we see at record the same latitude. Record, well, record temperatures now, but, but actually if you look across the latitudes and compare the weather that we get to what they get in the US and Canada, you know, mm. it's much warmer in Europe and the UK. And and this is due to these to these currents uh, that flow. But actually, climate models are showing that these uh, these ocean currents could be weakening a lot sooner than than we thought that they might be. It could start as soon as twenty twenty five. Now, some scientists don't agree with that, or they some scientists are concerned perhaps around the the methods of modelling in all of this. But ultimately, I think what this shows is the impact that we're having is not a long time in the future. I mean, 2025, that's just a couple of years away. It's pretty terrifying. Well, and and for anybody who's been on holiday uh, or has read the news or has been awake for the last, uh, mm-hmm. well, not just three weeks, but <laughs> feels like three years, um, you know, the south of Europe is on fire, literally. You know, it is, um, whether you're talking Sicily, whether you're talking Greek islands like Rhodes, um, and the north of Europe, I understand, I've seen some pretty horrific videos, is is uh, experiencing some really extreme wet weather as a kind of function of it being sort of warmer and more volatile climate. So I, I, one thing I kind of uh, didn't tweet, I tooted, Mastodon, um, about this, which was, um, are people connecting, you know, them having to return back from roads because their, their villa is on fire with... Um, policies like ULES or, you know, landlord efficiency, is is there, for the everyman and every woman, is there a connection here between the two? Because I actually don't think you have to be an expert to understand. But I, I do also think that there needs to be more of an effort to made to connect the dots and help people, not, not push them, but to lead them towards a, a rounder understanding that if they do fly to Greece, you know, or they, you know, they... they they resist 
low traffic neighborhoods or ULEs, that these things are going to be more likely and they're not good. Like, they're, they're tangibly awful. They are, they are, people are, you know, we're seeing people camping out in gymnasiums like they have been displaced by some nuclear war and they're on holiday. So if that isn't enough to wake somebody up, guys, I genuinely don't know what it is. I think it can be challenging though, Matt, because if you, you know, if you, you go on holiday, you, you just look, you think, well, all these, all these airplanes are going anyway, this stuff's happening anyway. It's like, sometimes it's harder to put your own actions into that bigger picture context. And I'm not saying that we shouldn't be doing it, but I can see how it can be, how it can yeah. feel sometimes so intangible and so far distant, you know, connecting your actions to those wider impacts, particularly where yeah. you need that collective action. Um, but actually, and I know today we're talking about water and in a lot of ways, I feel like water can sometimes bring some of these pieces together. Mm. And um, Matt, were you, was it you that, that popped in about this uh, this article in terms of what's been going on in the Thames? I'm yeah, not so sure I mean, we're, we're anywhere near that next time. I'm well, in the, the, sorry, the Seine in Paris. Yeah, the Seine. Um, so we're we're mindful on this program that you can't we can't just talk about the bad stuff. And I think there was a piece today uh, in, in the Guardian, kind of pointing to this, is that we can't just be doomsters and gloomsters. As as I think I'm taking a um, uh, a term often used by Boris Johnson, actually, um, but we can't. You know, we have to focus on the good news stories. And there was a really good one. Uh, with regards to water about Paris and the Seine that runs right through the middle. If any of you have been lucky enough to visit Paris, what a river, what a location. Um, and for the first time in 100 years, they're expecting people um, next year or the year after to be able to swim in the Seine. It was actually banned, um, I think 1923, um, and you know, a whole host of issues, not least pollution. But with the Olympics coming to, uh, coming to Paris, they're wanting to run some events there. And so they've invested a tremendous amount of money, underwater reservoirs to catch any uh, runoff in terms of you know effluents and all the rest. Um, and they've seen in terms of making these changes, um, incremental changes and also big investments, that they've seen the population of fish boom. They've got giant catfish there two meters long. They've got wow. mollusks and you know dragonflies. And they're hoping not just to run these uh, events, the triathlon and marathon swimming, which sound incredibly um, painful, <laughs> but probably exciting events. Um, they'll have three open water swimming areas there. Now, I think going back to your point, Becky, that really, for me, if I, okay, take Glasgow and the Clyde that runs through the middle of it. If there were open water swimming areas there, I would say that would be a big tick for the city and it would make it a much more livable and a, you know exciting place to locate. So so good on the Parisians and well done. Yeah, and uh, and on the flip side, uh, last year in the UK, water companies discharged raw sewage into our rivers and seas more than 300,000 times. Mm -hmm. So that's pretty shocking. And, and Thames Water was actually fined 3.34 million for dumping sewage, killing uh, nearly 2,000 fish. So uh, maybe we need to uh, take a bit of a note out of France's book. <laughs> I think so. And, and I mean, this is hopefully a topic many people will be familiar with. If you haven't watched it, Paul Whitehouse's uh, documentary that he led on the BBC, looking at the state of our rivers, seas and lakes. He's a real keen fisherman. If anybody's watched Bob and, Bob and Paul go fishing, um, really spotlighted how bad things are. 
And listening to the Fergal Sharkey podcast on leading with Alistair Campbell and Rory Stewart said that I think the UK, and I, sorry, I say the UK because we, Scotland has a slightly different arrangement, um, but certainly England is the only nation to have a privatised, fully privatised water industry in the world. Mm. Uh, now that I'm, I'm borrowing uh, facts or quotes from, from, <laughs> from that episode. I think we need a bit of expertise and, a, and a, you know, <laughs> some ideas about how to fix this, hence why we have a fantastic guest about to come in. Hey, I'm Hugo Tagholm, the Vice President and Executive Director of Oceana in the UK. But I spent the last 14 years running the campaigning organisation Surface Against Sewage. I am an ocean campaigner and environmentalist. I write for Oceanographic magazine and I am a surfer for my sins, which is my access point to most things, um, ocean and water, from sewage to plastics, from sustainable fisheries to offshore oil and gas. Um, that is where I really draw my inspiration. I'm talking to you from Cornwall, um, right by the ocean, which is looking beautiful today, but sadly quite flat, but it does look very nice. So I'm just round the corner from you. So I'm also in Newquay. <laughs> we should have connected. Good. <laughs> Becky, you, you go with the first question. Yeah, That's yeah. too good a lead in. You're living practically next door to Hugo. Go, know, go, go. I was, <laughs> I was looking at that ocean thinking, oh, it looks beautiful today. I might go out for a little swim. Um, so, I mean, you mentioned your uh, I think amazing, amazing uh, breadth of expertise working in the sector over the last 14 years. But is surfing how you really got into this? You know, so is that is that what sort of, brought your interest in water from the outset or were there other sort of parts to parts to your story uh, yeah I mean I, I've, I've talked about it sort of publicly a bit before but you know really I started my my love for water and for nature as sort of a, a kid I was a, a mega geek really um, I um, loved being um, out in the wild finding stuff um, on the beach in rock pools in ponds in fields under rocks um, anything I could get my hands on I was interested in in the wild world um, um, actually back then particularly reptiles I was interested in but then then the ocean fascination developed and in my sort of um, youth I also got fascinated by sports um, athletics football and swimming and surfing all of which took hold and and, and environmentalism around the ocean really captures those those passions for me um, being in the in the elements I want to protect um, people sometimes refer to surfers and other other sports or, or sort of recreational enthusiasts as the canary in the coal mine for some of these issues um, sort of a marine indicator species which I, I partially agree with not not fully fully agree with but um, but certainly it's a, like a, a, a window for us to, to see some of these issues and of course People do say you protect what you love, and, and, and I also think that's partially true, which we might we might dive into today a bit. I'm not sure it's fully true, but um, it is um, it is something that is is, is interesting. So yeah, I've been a long time a f you know fan and 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 um, follower of, of of natural history. My my sort of childhood heroes um, weren't musicians of the time although I think musicians of the time were people like Bross so um that's probably probably good um um but um but uh were really naturalist people like David Attenborough um and others who who you know I'm, I feel so fortunate to have been able to work with and alongside over the course of my career to date from your perspective you're, an, you're a very important voice 
on this particular issue, one I've followed very, very closely over the last year or so. From your perspective, what are the main challenges we face with water in the UK today? And just how big and severe are those challenges? You know, the environment is now now front and centre of people's minds in a way that it wasn't even even sort of a few years ago, certainly a, a, a decade ago, um, certainly when I took the helm at, at Surface Against Sewage on on that big part of my career. Um, you know, people were interested, but they weren't that interested. And it wasn't a, a topic um, on the lips of, of, of people around the country. It wasn't dinner table discussion necessarily. It certainly wasn't on sort of, have I got news for you? It wasn't on the cover of Private Eye. It wasn't on the daily front cover of newspapers. So it's it's great to see see um, these issues now now firmly um, at the top of the political media and the public agenda. It's really important. Um, you know, nothing else we do in our society um, can really happen without a healthy environment around us, um, and that's that's just a matter of fact. We all depend on a healthy environment, so it's high time, uh, if not a bit late, that we we really start driving these things forward. So I'm pleased. Pleased that that is the case. I mean, it it is, um, you know, it's, it's no doubt it's taken a, a long time to get there. And you know, back in in twenty, you know, twenty ten, you know, people people weren't interested in the sewage issue particularly, which is what we're talking about, and the water quality issue. It, it wasn't really a thing. It was hard to get it on the front pages. The evidence wasn't out there yet. All of these stats we see in these graphs and red crosses and dots on maps, all of that just didn't exist. And that's the work that I undertook um, leading SAS and building the team there to really expose the water companies for what they were doing, to bring new evidence to the table. We were the champions of real-time information. Um, we devised, developed and pioneered those maps and we started to sell in the stories. At the beginning it was a slow burn, you know, people didn't want to put on the front pages yeah. of newspapers, maybe apart from the Sun and the Star who were putting various other types of on the front of their papers. But uh, certainly from a, from a point of view of the mainstream media, it really wasn't that much a thing. And, and to a degree, you know, some of the, the reason behind that was a was this this sense, and even the the environmentalists were guilty of this. After the privatisation of the water companies in in the the end of the eighties in nineteen eighty nine, and that that first decade of of sort of work, I think a lot of people said the work's done. I heard people in my close mm -hmm. going, "Oh, it's all good. Water quality is all good, and everything's done. And why are you even campaigning anymore? Combined sewer overflows aren't a problem. You know, this isn't an issue." But we knew. You know, we knew and my team knew and we were f trying to find, you know, the evidence, the smoking gun, you know, build all of that, that, that portfolio of evidence from health, health um, of surfers and swimmers through to, you know, real-time alerts on sewage, um, through to the water quality testing itself. And, and so we built, we built that campaign and we made all of that, that happen in the face of apathy from some people of challenge from others, of obfuscation from the industry, of, of distraction, of delay from government, all of those things. And we, we made it happen and we, we, we got that information, um, that particularly that real-time information. So it's great to see it as headline news. But Well, if, 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 if I can just jump in quickly before we kind of dissect what some of the challenges are, just in terms of public awareness and concern around this, is this a function of the problem getting a lot worse in terms of water quality since privatization 
and or the fact that people are more concerned and I want to use the word aware, but the, the, our rivers, our lakes and oceans are maybe being used more by the average voter and citizen, whether that's swimming, surfing, whatever it might be, that people are just confronted with this issue more. Uh, so it could be the both. But from your perspective, you know, is it what is driving this agenda? Yeah, look, it's a really good question. But it's a, it, it is not just both. It's, it's a combination of factors. Um, you know, privatization was a was a con, basically a financial con. It built a, an environmental, you know, Ponzi scheme for 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 people to extract money from the the country whilst polluting our rivers um, and our seas. Um, they took in the 1990s was what was largely a visible coastal problem and hid it upstream in rivers and streams to become a visible. Um, a visible river problem that became again a visible coastal problem. So there's that. It was a new data. So people often talk about 2016 when there was this sudden jump in the levels of pollution. Well, that was a sudden jump in data as well. And that was data that we pressured the government and water companies to give us um, to make sure people had that real time data. So the data came out. As you say, Matt, more and more people also using the sea, you know, surfing, wild swimming, river swimming, all of these things have become boom sports stand up paddle boarding is one of the the fastest growing sports in the country i believe all of those things that took people onto our canals our rivers onto lakes into the ocean you know from the tip of scotland right down to cornwall so all of those things came together um, and then you had fundamentally at the heart of it water companies who weren't investing enough so over the course of time so maybe the first decade was okay. They got away with minim, minimal investments in the grand scheme of things, but but got away with saying they had done well. And then they've just slowly, slowly, well, not slowly, they've quickly taken out more and more cash whilst not investing enough. So the very systems they've got are creaking and causing more problems. Uh, so they're being overwhelmed by, by things they could have provisioned for. You know, the growth in housing of population, the changing weather patterns, all of those things. So you've got a composite of impacts that have led us to a place that then we're told at times by the industry, it's almost intractable. It will cost too much to do anything about it. And it's like, well, if you just acted in time, you know, I mean, it's a bit like me sort of going out on a night out and then continuing to drink all night and then telling my boss it's impossible for me not to be drunk when I come to work. Like, <laughs> do the right thing at the right time, you know. You know, finish drinking at uh, whatever ten o'clock. Don't drink yeah. too much. So you know? now, I mean, is this is this something where you can see there being a positive change, or do we need to see stronger regulation? Do we need to see more data being collected to help uh, to help really ensure that this doesn't get worse into the future? It's a, another good question. Look, I think we're we're definitely on the cusp of change. There's no way the status quo can carry on and that the water companies can get away with this. And it will lead to renationalization if there isn't dramatic reform within within the uh, in industry. Um, we're going to need much tougher regulation. We're going to need much tougher enforcement. Um, you know, people band around various things on prison sentences for CEOs and other stuff. And, you know, maybe that is all right. I mean, what, what we're seeing with the water quality issue is sort of a perfect combination 
of, of issues in this social media age. It's a very binary issue for people to understand. It's sewage or no sewage in our seas and rivers. No one wants sewage to be in our seas and rivers. So like, you know, it's not like, oh, well, maybe a bit. It's like, no, like absolutely not. We've got very rich companies with opaque financial systems to avoid tax um, and offshoring their profits who are extracting vast sums of money from a country where people are struggling to pay their heating bills, pay their shopping bills and look after their children. Um, and then we have this depleted environment which people are using. So they see the issue live and direct. So they're like, how the hell is this happening in this day and age? Um, and a government that they see as complicit with it because of the votes that happened during the Environment Act and actually a, an apathy towards the environment, which even their own environment ministers with Zach Goldsmith are resigning about. So I'd like to pick up on that because it feels like water quality is one of these bipartisan issues, uh, at least from the voter base, that it's actually something that could really unite in the forthcoming general election, which rumour has it could be as early as May 24, yeah. um, that your average, if there is such a thing, average uh, Conservative voter versus average Labour voter um, might actually be unified around both wanting good quality water on their beaches, in their rivers and their lakes. Now, the point about how we've arrived at this problem actually is deeply political. You've pointed to privatisation. But from your perspective, you know, are we actually looking at a voter base who, you know, on opposite ends of the spectrum might both want the same thing? Because if so, that feels like a, a ripe area for policymaking. Um, yeah, look, I think it's a, a really good point. I do think this unites people across the political divide. I mean, no one can be for sewage in our rivers. I think the, the, the solutions are, are, are challenging and complex, um, which may unite people in, in, a, in a weaker a weaker way because there's there's some trade-offs and compromises people are going to have to make around it but you know what you know fundamentally and i think it's relevant to you know you know the, the audience and, and people listening is you know this is really about about people responding to a very local issue about what they can do it's about what they see in their local stretch of river it's what they see along their coastline it's what they might see on holiday or become fearful about whether they go to brighton for a you know a bucket and spade weekend whether they go to cornwall to one of the beautiful campsites or caravan parks for a week or whether they go elsewhere around the country scarborough or or, or wherever you know it's something that, that they've really sort of picked up on as, as impacting their experiences and their day-to-day -day life. So it's a very local issue, which people have acted on locally. They're starting to get that information sort of locally and connect with their politicians locally too, demanding more of their... Their, their local constituency MP, getting in touch with local water companies. So there's a lot of local action that's going on around this. And it is, it is uniting people. I mean, I, I think there is a, there is a, a, a probably a, a sense of, in my, my if I'm, I'm really sort of honest about it, a sense of being really careful that it doesn't become, you know, the solutions don't, don't become the preserve of the, the sort of elite because there are very many privileged people who do these sports. Um, and have time to do them, you know, surfing certainly, um, sailing and stand-up paddleboarding, probably while swimming. And there's many people who are just up against it in this cost-of-living era. And it's very important that the people who are as lucky as me, as lucky as many people I know, who use their privilege to campaign to protect these areas for everyone, no matter how frequently they can use them, and if they can use them at all, because a clean environment and a, a sort of a thriving environment is important whether you use it or not. And it's not... It's not in the gift of big 
companies like water companies to use it to pollute. And I just to finish that, I'll go back to a quote that from one of my marine sort of heroes, Jacques Cousteau, from fifty plus years ago, which you know is you know air and water, the two essential fluids on which all life depends, have become global garbage cans. And that 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 quote remains the same to this day. Carbon dioxide pump, pumped out year on year since the first COP meeting, water companies polluting our ocean and our rivers, you know, plastic pollution endemic in all water courses and in our air, in every in everything. And so I think it's you know fundamental that you know anything impacting air and water is 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 really a human rights issue and it's for everyone. And the access point to that is often with a bit of privilege, but it's being able to use those spaces. So we've got to use our privilege to do good for everyone. Really, really glad to to hear you bring up that point, Hugo, because I was wondering it. And now I'm not someone who's on the inside of the water conversation or involved in those sort of sports and activities and communities. Um, but I do live in the northeast of Scotland where the connection to local lochs and rivers and glens and stuff is very, very personal. It might not be for necessarily the same sort of leisurely reasons, but they are very, very, um, very personal and, and very proud about it. So I guess, do you see a, a need to try and broaden the, the base of people involved in action like the action that you're taking around this issue? Um, if not, why not? And beyond that, more generally... Um, what is it that people can do locally if they're concerned about the use of their their rivers and their lakes and whatever else it might be? Look, it's a, it's a really good question, and that broadening of the base is is interesting. Of course, you sort of you want to bring as many many people along on a journey as you can, particularly when it it comes down to to big political changes. But the the crucial question is is what the what is the sort of tipping point? to actually get that political change over the line not that you take everyone with you because sometimes that's just impossible you know I, you know the beach isn't for everyone the river isn't for everyone these issues aren't for everyone many people don't have the time to to actually dedicate to pay attention to these things um, you know they might be just struggling to put food on the table or heat their house they might be struggling with childcare issues and so we we can't be we can't be arrogant in thinking that we can get everyone to come along on these issues. We've got to we've got to try and convince them that they're important, of course. But we've got to take the right the right people along to create the change and make sure elected officials and big business sees that. So, so um, so you you want to create an inclusive movement and make sure that it's open to everyone. But you've got to be you, you've got to be aware that that it. It, it, it's, it's probably fanciful to think everyone will, will care. You know, many you know many people, and I sit here near you, Becky, in in Cornwall, and many people down here do do care about the ocean. But you know, as I travel to and fro from London, and I'm in you know on the streets of Camden or, or Islington or Soho or wherever, you know, it's le it's less relevant to people's day to day, and we've got to recognise that. You know, it feels very relevant to me every day because I see it and I'm here, but not necessarily relevant and it's great to see it getting onto you know onto radio 4 into private eye onto the front of the times it's great to hear fergal talking about it on twitter it's great all of that things even the cut through to the much more mainstream things like you know good morning britain or whatever but that's still that's still a niche there's still an echo chamber amongst all of it and the good thing is it's cutting through politically and it's becoming an election issue. And I think you mentioned it, Matt, and I think it will be a, or maybe it was Becky, you mentioned it. It's going to become a really important election issue because it's so understandable. It's not, it's not actually the biggest environmental issue. 
it's one of them but but it, it's a way of people understanding the environment it's a way of people understanding the injustice and a way of people engaging with it very personally and so that's why it's important yeah i mean it, in many respects the kind of the the effect as you say is, is is simple enough to understand if you're in poor quality water it, often it's visibly bad right in terms of the causes you've mentioned privatization and lack of investment in our water infrastructure i'd like i'd like to just push you a little bit more on that if if i may the, the quality of our water is a factor of many different influences and so you know some of the, the information that I've kind of consumed around this points to intensive agriculture, poor town planning, you know, lots of surfaces, not enough natural kind of catchment, a, a reduction in generally in our natural spaces like mud flats, you know, reed beds and the, these types of kind of natural um, ecosystems that can kind of clean and catch our water. So I just wanted to ask you the, the question because I think before we get on to what can each of us do and what this election issue should translate into manifesto policies what is actually driving it as, as well beyond that lack of investment and privatization well i mean look you you describe it sort of very well there i mean we, we're seeing a, an, a, an overarching depletion of of nature and and natural spaces i mean we're in one of the most nature depleted countries in the world we're like right at the bottom of the the league tables for that and for water quality incidentally mm -hmm. and this is you know, this is a this is the, the 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 age we live in. You know that that we're at that sort of that that tipping point between whether society can carry on at, on its current trajectory. We're, we're using up our forests, our land, our seagrass meadows, our estuaries, everything, and and now we're seeing the the, the true impacts of that. And there have been some pretty devastating. I mean, news this week on the wider scale. You know, I mean, you look at what's happening across Europe with wildfires and floods um, and you know, this is all part of the same problem you know too, you know too much consumption you know too much industrialization of our land and increasingly our sea um, you know too many hard surfaces not enough nature the straightening of our rivers um, you know the depletion of our uplands so forests not absorbing enough enough water and water flowing down into our streams and rivers and into our sort of sewer systems too quickly so there's a, a real sort of compound effect of that there's you know more people and we can't begrudge more people we can't say oh there's you know we're, you know let's you know can stop you know draw up the drawbridge but you know water companies and other industries aren't necessarily provisioning for that um in in what they're that they're doing and so you know for me there's so many access you know points to this there's so many you know contributing factors um to it um and it's 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 very complex for for something that's very binary in the communication space because believe you me like at times you know at the moment certainly with you know with the media i think it's quite you know straightforward to achieve some of the, the headlines because it's so easy to understand but the solutions are are very sort of complicated and we're going to see sort of whole new wave of of of, of protests against some of the sewage sewage solutions potentially as water companies propose digging up beautiful villages in cornwall to put in new holding tanks for more rainwater not all of the rainwater. And so people will start fighting against some of the actually proposed solutions as well. So this sort of green on green fight, which we're seeing more and more. 
and before before you came on, we were talking about the, the recent news around the ULEZ yeah. in, in London and the pushback on that, even from folk who maybe do agree with you know better mm. air quality. So here we've got better water quality, and what are some of the solutions? So I think you know from a kind of from your perspective and some of your um, some of your fellow activists. Are there two or three things that you know we really should be seeing in some of these manifestos yeah. coming out? Because yeah. it's one thing to say we need investment, but then the question is, well, what are the solutions? And and as you say, uh, how better will that medicine be? Yeah. Well, look, I mean, I think that takes it nice, you know, nicely into sort of the broader context of of what we need to do. And you know, there's a, f- a few things we can sort of unpack there because you know, ultimately we're in this, this, we are in the ocean decade at the moment and this government has got a, a commitment um, under the, the um, Kunming Montreal protocol to, to restore and, and protect 30% of our land and sea by 2030, this big biodiversity target. Um, and, and some of that will be really good for water quality because of course we'll, we've got to be restoring forests, we've got to be restoring rivers, we've got to be better protecting those, some of those coastal ecosystems you mentioned, seagrass meadows um, and uh, mudflats and those nearshore environments. And how can we do that if water companies are pumping out sewage that suffocates um, those habitats? So there's some really big high-level stuff that we should be championing, which is positive. And people do need some hope because... You know, we can't, it can't just all be doom and gloom. It's like, where are the solutions? You know, how are people in control at a time they feel sometimes out of control and hopeless for the future? And we've got to paint, and this is what political parties should be doing. They should paint a vision of hope for people, not a vision of doom. It should be about what is this new economy we're creating? Where are those jobs coming from? How are you going to swim in clean rivers? What are you going to get when you go on holiday to the coastline in Newquay or, or Scarborough? You know, all of those things that we can actually paint a new picture for people and be ambitious around, which is not what we're really hearing from anyone, maybe apart from the Green Party at the moment. And so it's like a really sort of like interesting time around that. You know, what are the other big pledges? I mean, the the climate issue is a really interesting one in terms of the the rainfall patterns that we've got, which are also driving, you know, more flash flooding and like incredible weather events in the summertime and across the year, putting massive pressure on our sewer system. A lot of those maps you see on the sewage issue will be driven by massive events like that. You know, the moment it, you know, I mean, you'll know, Becky, the moment it's like raining down here and all of the maps are going off the charts. And so that's also climate linked. So we've got to make sure that the, the government is actually ambitiously delivering its commitments under the Paris Agreement to um, to tackle climate change and reduce emissions. And it shouldn't be opening up the Rosebank oil field. It shouldn't be opening up any new oil and gas in this country or anywhere in the world. And we should be making this ambitious transition to green jobs in onshore and offshore renewables. We should be talking about how we create that future for our children and their children beyond them. Um, and we should be um, on water quality. You know, I think that there is a, a really big, big reshaping of how the industry is run um, to, to really protect the environment. And, and that, is, that, that could be renationalization. Um, some parties are calling for that already, but certainly capping, you know, capping um, you know, these excessive dividends and, and bonuses until the work is done really needs to happen. So there's some quite granular stuff in that. But you know, overall, I mean, I don't actually think that 
our water should be in private hands. It should be a national. It's just so crucial to life. I mean, we do not want certainly other countries to own our water, and I wouldn't wouldn't say it matters which. Just we, we shouldn't have any other foreign entities owning our water supplies. It's too too risky. I don't think you'll hear any disagreement from the three of us and probably not from anyone that listens to the pod either. Uh, But I suspect a lot of our listeners might not have known some of the things you've talked about. As we said at the beginning, this is our first kind of real deep dive into, into water. And so probably a lot of folk are listening along thinking, absolutely, what can I do now? And I guess I've couched that in the fact, so I live on the coast and I would say like, you know, we, we go along, we do beach cleanups, we get the influx of tourists and there's a lot more to do. But beyond some of the, I guess, the more immediate and tangible things, it can sometimes feel a little bit, you know, what can I do to create that change? Is it all in the hands of government and big industry? Or how can I really take action to support my community, um, my area, do things differently? So to all of our listeners out there that are thinking, yes, I want to get involved, maybe have you got a few key mm. top tips yeah. of what folk can do? Well, look, I mean, it's a good question. I think that's part of this hope and sort of empowerment. You know, I think people, when they're taking action, they feel hopeful. They feel more in control. They feel they're, they're doing something and people need need to do that. And, you know, that's what inspired me back in 2016 to found the Plastic Free Communities Movement in my previous role, which, you know, we had a sort of a lofty ambition of it being 100 or so communities. And now it's, you know, hundreds and hundreds up and down in the country, you know, um, representing millions of, of people. And, and those people are coming together on single-use plastic and other issues, wider issues, climate and water quality and things. So it's like amazing to see. And I'm all for individual action. I think it's good um, and it does have an effect. And some people argue about, you know, is it top top down or bottom up that you need need to change? And I don't believe in either, either or. It's a toolkit and you've got to do some of, of each of those things and other things coming in from the side to deliver change. And what, what can people do? Um, you know, they on on this issue particularly. You know, they they should inform themselves about water quality in their area. You know, with some of the apps out there, which often help connect them with elected officials or water company CEOs to voice their dis you know discontent, to take action, to demonstrate how much um, pollution has is going in to those in power. Um, they can um, they can even meet their their local MP quite easily. Um, And in Cornwall, I think we're used to that. But you can do it anywhere. And you can go along to surgeries on a Friday um, in the local constituency. And you can find out about that quite easily online. Um, And you can can see your local MP about these issues. And you can talk to them about your concerns um, on climate, on water quality, on plastic pollution, on your local park, on your local beach, on all of these things. So good, go and have a direct conversation. These are just people, politicians. You know, they're no more special than you or I. They're, they're normal people. Go along and talk to them. Challenge them. You don't have to t- say what they, something you think they want to hear. Tell them what you think they don't want to hear and tell them that. You know, so, so, so sort of keep going. Um, think about your consumer choices and your footprint. But I don't think it is about individual action as a wholesale thing. So I think we've all got to be conscious of the industry playbook the one I want and we see it from the water companies in saying to solve the problem what they need us to do is not flush wet wipes down the toilet and then everything will be right and they'll spend millions on these campaigns they'll tell you you know not to 
not to leave the tap on when you're brushing your teeth because you're wasting so much water from industries that are wasting millions and millions and millions of litres every day because of leaks. And, and, and this is this is a one-on-one that we saw from the plastics industry before and that we see from you know, those people on who, who are responsible for big carbon emissions. So for me, I think it's, um, it's important to, to recognise that your biggest tool is voting. And we may, as Matt says, ha- have an election in May. Definitely by the end of next year, we'll have an election. And you should inform yourself of who is doing the most for the planet and for people genuinely. Because... At the moment, the news we hear from this government is they're trying to dial back on on environmental initiatives and policies, and that's very retrograde, and I don't think people will buy it. What people need to do is, is actually paint a new future, because business as usual is destroying the planet and destroying our children's futures, and we've got to see where we get to. And sorry to ramble, but this is a bigger a bigger issue of like what we're prepared to accept individually too, and I think governments are often concerned that if they make big radical decisions we'll all be annoyed as the electorate but we saw during the stage rehearsal of the pandemic despite its tragedy that we could all adapt very quickly to new things and new ways of being and that governments could act very quickly and we need to demand that they act really quickly on some of these environmental issues now and mobilize funds in a different way and create a different future for us all and voting can help us do that. Hugo, that's absolutely fantastic. We've many, many more questions to ask, but we've run out of time. So I just want to say a huge thank you. That was a really, really important overview, I guess, of all the key issues and solutions. So thank you. And please, maybe down the line, and as we uh, see the general election on the horizon, it'd be great to have you back and to hear a little bit more about some of the progress that's been made. Love to. Thanks, Matt. Right, folks, we've had the inspirational Hugo Tagum on the pod. Um, Really enjoyed that. What were your immediate reflections and thoughts? Well, I think to start, I didn't realise quite what situation we were in with water. I didn't, it was quite a new topic to me. So it was really shown quite a a light just to see. Mm. And actually, interestingly, how some of the issues that he brought up with water are quite similar to some of the issues that we've been talking about for quite a while with energy as well. Yeah, I think that really, really jumped out. And I think the um, the connections, particularly the, the local connections, but also across all the themes that we talk about so often um, with energy. Yeah, they're, they're so, so, so pertinent. But still, like, it's a, it's a big issue. And I'll, I'll admit I'm not heavy into the water debate. I don't know everything about it. But I, I appreciate the scale of the problem problem now. But on the back of that conversation, feel somewhat hopeful. Yeah. I don't know if you you left with that same sentiment. I was kind of hopeful in the sense that I think we're achieving cut through on this topic. Uh, As I mentioned before, it's Mm -hmm. increasingly, well, hopefully bipartisan. Um, Hugo kept talking about, you know, this is an easy enough issue to grasp and that's why people are concerned about it, which made me hopeful for water and actually much more concerned about climate change <laughs> because, you know, you know, you can't kind of grasp a molecule of CO2 um, and to bridge that kind of between cause and effect. So I think there's a lot more work to be done actually in terms of communication of other environmental and sustainability issues to make that kind of make sense and become more tangible to people. But I thought there were some really nice points that came came through, right? So if you can bring people along, and as you say, it is an issue where a lot of people feel strongly in the same direction, um, push for that 
shift in sort of better data, more information, mm. better regulation, uh, you know, stronger, stronger rules around what is and isn't okay, and really enforcing that with the water companies. I mean, just what they've been able to get away with over the past yeah. years seems absolutely unbelievable. So I think there's a lot of like potential solutions in there as well, which is yeah. quite refreshing. What are the chances that two doctors and a professor are going to agree that we need more data, please? <laughs> um, <laughs> we do. Hugo, we agree. hundred <laughs> percent. But I think I, I would say, I, I think, um, and I agree with, I agree with all of that, Becky. And I, I think the, um, the point about solutions, the the information that we got there, things things feel tangible within that conversation. And I was really, really heartened mm. by the conversation um, around inclusion and bringing people along, which is one that we've had often. And that is, this is an issue that a lot of people care very, very passionately about. You don't need every single person in the country to to join the front line of, of the issue, but it does have to be open. And we have to recognise that an issue like water, and when you broaden that out to the environment, it does have direct impacts for everyone. We all have a all have a stake in it. And I love that idea of kind of that that inclusive, diverse movement building, but very much a focus on taking action and getting things done quite holistically with a lot of different ways. But um, yeah, really, really positive, proactive episode, I thought. And importantly, that that action is not just about not flushing things down the toilet or whatever, but yes, it's also yes. about getting out there, talking Vote. to people, voting, reaching out to your local authority, yeah. uh, you know, all of that. Absolutely brilliant. Write angry letters and yeah. go and vote. So you've been listening to Local Zero, a plea once more to subscribe to the pod. And if you know anybody who might enjoy it, then word of mouth is also a very powerful tool. Why don't you suggest our podcast to them? And if you're feeling generous, please also leave us a review. This helps boost those important algorithms that mean we reach new potential community change makers. And if you haven't already, please take a minute to find and follow us on Twitter at Local Zero Pod to get involved with discussions over there. Also, email us at localzeropod at gmail.com if you want to share some longer form thoughts and we're always open to suggestions for potential new episodes but for now thank you again and goodbye bye 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 produced by the spoken media